Thanks for being with us. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, a large group of protesters uh, has largely dispersed in Hong Kong after clashes broke out once again. Riot officers using tear gas to drive back hundreds of protesters along a main road. That clash followed a protest march earlier where demonstrators were targeting smart lampposts that had been erected in that area, fearing that those lampposts will lead to increased surveillance. Well, a lot of people are paying attention to what is happening in Hong Kong, the continued protests. And Justin Chang-Yen Cheng joins me on the line now. He's a master's student at UBC uh, looking at Hong Kong history, uh, born and raised in Hong Kong, uh, but has moved, has left that area uh, left that area some time ago. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this this morning. Well, thank you for, for inviting me. Uh, you uh, study at UBC, as I mentioned. You joined the UBC, a Hong Kong Studies initiative uh, to help organizing with events and such here. What, why is it important to you as far as watching what's happening in Hong Kong and keeping, uh, keeping up with what is happening in Hong Kong right now? Well, to me, of course, this is um, very important to me. I was born and raised there, so um, it's, it's my home. So of course, I care a lot about what ha- what's happening there. And, on, and of course, um, at that at the moment, I have many of my friends um, of my age or even older, younger than me, they are participating in this protest. And and of course, I'm very concerned about their safety. Have you been able to and reach course, them um, or or speak with them? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, um, of course, I can communicate with them. Um, on and on, on and off, and uh, and when I was in Hong Kong it, this summer, and I joined some of the protests as well, so I kind of um, know what's happening there. So I, I knew the situation, so I am worried about them. What was it like when you joined the protests? Um, of course, there are a lot of like um, peaceful protests, and of course, there are some clashes between the police and the protesters from time to time, as you can see from a lot of media coverage, um, but. I would say that um, it really depends on um, what your take or like the, your capacity. Like your capacity. Um, so, just like if you're not able to to confront the police, then then you might want to be at a little bit um, back at at the back behind and to being like in a supporter role instead of that. Mm. And and why was it important for you to be part of the protest to to be part of that group? Um, also, it's, it's my um, it's a first-hand experience to me, and I would understand like what the protesters are thinking. And um, uh, of course, it's a well. I'm doing I'm studying Hong Kong history, so to me, it's a very um, special experience, and I know that it's going to change Hong Kong history a lot. Um, so, so I, I feel that like I had to be there and see what's happening and, and feel it. And, and are you concerned, or how fearful are you that that things will change in Hong Kong? Uh, that or change, uh, I suppose, uh, for the, the the reason for the protests is that the fear that they will change for the worse. Um. Well, of course, I mean, I mean, no one can tell like what what the government is thinking because, like, they, they um, we have been protesting for two months, for over two months, um, but like the government. Did not really respond to the five demands, and um, you know um, we have the central government at the back and trying to. I don't know how they would do the, the protest, though, but but um, 
so far I can't tell if it's going to be the be better or worse. But I, but I think, well, but, but like as I said, like Hong Kong cannot return to what it was before this summer. And when you when you say it can't return to what it was before the summer, what do you mean by that? I mean like the 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 police brutality in Hong Kong happening right now is uh, changed a lot. Like it's it changed um, people's feeling or the trust confidence towards the police and also to the government. And it's a, and it's, it's also shows us that um, through a lot of peaceful protests we can't get what we want. So. Um, that's why, like many protesters, have become more violent, and um, and so I, I think, like even though, um, like even though if if the uh, if the demands are satisfied or not, um, the Hong Kong people, with their trust, their confidence to the government and the system, um, is going to change a lot. Uh, we've seen uh, protests in Vancouver as well or other parts of the world. The last weekend in Vancouver, uh, there was a rally uh, for people uh, standing up for those who are protesting in Hong Kong, uh, standing up for democracy. But we also saw a counter protest uh, of people supporting China. Uh, what do you what's your take on the fact that we're even seeing those 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 counter protests in Vancouver? Yeah, um, actually, I was there. Um, that day, and um, I saw that um, people from both sides they are, or they have a lot, a little bit of um, co- um, commentation, like by singing each of their different anthems. Um, like one side singing um, the PRC's anthem, and another, another side singing O Canada, and um, they are shouting slogans over each other. Um, I feel like actually it's, it's totally fine to have different um, different views on the protest. But I think it's it's not um, it's not really good to to have them at the same location at the same time because um, they have different rules. So it's it's going to be um, intensified the situation. So I um, I think um, there should be a more peaceful way or like a more um, yeah there should be a more peaceful way to to have both sides um, protest. But yeah. All right. And will you continue? Uh, I mentioned off the top that you joined uh, the, the UBC Hong Kong Studies Initiative as far as organizing events and talks and, and such. Will you continue to do that? Yeah, of course. I think it's very meaningful to um, to promote or introduce Hong Kong's um, studies and Hong Kong situation to the Canadians here. And, of, and by inviting um, scholars and um, speakers and holding different kinds of events, because um, like we have a lot of um, immigrants from Hong Kong, and we have um, many Canadians um, having Hong Kong heritage. So I think it's very important for them, and also it's important for other um, other local people that um, to know, to learn about Hong Kong, like in which um, also at the same time um, there are over like um, three hundred thousand of um, of Canadians in, living in Hong Kong. So Actually, the, the, the linkage between Hong Kong and Canada is so close, and I, so I think it's important to introduce Hong Kong to them, to Canada. All right, definitely. Uh, Justin, we will leave it there, but thank you so much for taking some time uh, to talk with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Well, we tend to be a bit of a throwaway society, don't we? We use things once or twice. So we buy new clothes. We buy、uh, new things when we want them. The appliances we use. Sometimes it's easier just to replace them. Rather than get them fixed, but there is an event taking place today aimed at reversing that trend. It is called the Repair Cafe, and it's happening between 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. at the Hillcrest Center. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Dan Withers, who is a co-founder of the Metrovan Repair Cafes. Dan, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me.、Uh, so, what exactly is going to be happening today? Yeah, so、uh, the Met- at the、uh, Repair Cafe today, you'll.、Uh, You'll see a bunch of、uh, volunteers there,、uh, ready to fix your stuff, and that's pretty much anything. So, anything you can carry, pretty much, we'll try to repair. We have people that have skills in textiles,、uh, electronics, small appliances, uh, jewelry. Uh, I think we even have someone that can fix and tune up some stringed instruments today as well.、Hmm. And where do you find the volunteers? Uh, yeah, from actually all over the place. We do a lot of promotion、uh, online, like on Facebook and Twitter.、Uh, we've reached out to a lot of community centers and trying to find those people with repair expertise that are trying to get them out of the woodwork, which is sometimes pretty difficult. <laughs> I can I can imagine. Yeah,、um, that's a pretty wide range of things. Is there one particular area that you see people bring in more of, say appliances, or you mentioned jewelry? Is there is there something that kind of is the more common thing that people will get fixed? Yeah, we definitely see、uh, stuff from all over the place, but、uh, definitely our textiles and our small appliances are probably the busiest. Okay, interesting. So and so, do people bring、um, bring clothing in to get it repaired? Yeah, that's right. Usually, like just、uh, getting something mended, something with a hole or a tear,、uh, darning socks, that kind of stuff. And and why is it important to you, or how did you get involved in in doing this and trying to reverse、uh, our throwaway culture? Yeah, I, I guess I was at a stage in life where I was looking to have a you know spend a bit more of my time and energy、uh, having a more positive impact on the people around me. So、uh, I found these. Repair events. I started volunteering.、Uh, I'm actually an electrical engineer by training, so I was、uh, about for the last year. I've been volunteering, fixing small appliances and electronics, and really just fell in love with the whole movement and the whole、uh, idea.、Uh, get, get to build community, get,、uh, be face to face across the table with people.、Uh, you get to problem solve, learn new things, share some knowledge, and yeah, hopefully at the end it's all better for the planet and better for our communities. Have you ever had someone bring in something that you've tried to repair and you just couldn't do it? Yeah, definitely.、Uh, that happens quite often,、um, and it's actually it's kind of a nice point, I guess. In the repair cafes, is it's still another point of、uh, education that we can show people that、uh, that there's lots of things that can't be repaired, and、uh, some of the reasons are actually systemic.、Um, So, looking at whether spare parts are available,、um, whether things are made to be repaired or not, or not. So, we really try to educate the visitors, and hopefully, we spur them towards looking at their buying choices and hopefully putting pressure on manufacturers to make stuff more repairable. Hmm. And I would imagine then, then does it go to the next part? Then, say, if somebody brings in an appliance that can't be fixed, then is the the next step is then well, at least to try and recycle it. Yeah, that's right. So we、um, have electro recycle usually on site, and they actually will be there today at Hillcrest. 
So if we don't have, uh, if you can't get your appliance repaired, then we do have options for recycling it. And and if people are bringing in those, say, bikes with a broken chain, are there chains there? Or how do you, do you have parts and things on site to help repair? <laughs> uh, we would love to. Uh, definitely, there's so many materials that we could have on hand uh, for every kind of different repair. Uh, that really depends on uh, our funding and whether or not we have the funds to buy um, materials. Uh, we do have some very basic stuff, like glues and uh, different kinds of adhesives, some electronic components. Uh, the bike guys usually will bring in some like extra cables. I don't know if they usually bring in extra chains, but um, yeah, we're always looking for donations, definitely for uh, buying those kinds of materials. Right. And that was kind of, I was going to ask, so it's a free public event, but do people make donations if, if they do get things repaired? Yeah, we definitely, uh, we definitely encourage donations and, we run on a pretty small uh, shoestring budget. Actually, right now, it's almost a zero budget. So uh, we're really uh, trying to yeah, find supporters uh, that will help us financially. All right. Is there anything that's off limits? Uh, do not bring uh, items to the event? Yeah, I mean, stuff that uh, we don't really look at really large stuff. So if you can't carry it, we probably won't be looking at it, such as... Um, I don't know if you want to bring in your fridge or something. It's probably not something we'll look at. Uh, the The idea of these repair cafes is really looking at those kinds of uh, materials that people would normally be looking to throw away instead of repair. Um, those kinds of items that are larger and more expensive, uh, where repair services are available, we do encourage uh, our visitors to, to go to those services. Right. So don't uh, pull up in your truck with your refrigerator strapped to the back of it <laughs> and think that somebody can come out and fix it for you. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, anything bizarre? I, I'm thinking like a VCR or things like that that seem out of date. Do people still bring in those types of things? Yeah, we. I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, uh, items that maybe aren't that valuable to uh, the everyday person, but have a lot of nostalgic uh, connection with the owners. So we've definitely seen some really old radios, some really old clocks that people have brought in. that no one, There's just no one available to repair it, and it's not really worth anyone uh, repair person's time hmm. but uh, for these people it's it's uh it's worth a lot so it's great to see the smile on people's faces when you can get uh, some of their old stuff working again all right so 10 o'clock to one o'clock the hillcrest center in vancouver so people can come by at any point uh, during that time with their uh, whatever needs fix fixing yeah, and, and right. hope to get a little help yeah that's right it's uh, first come first serve and if there's a lineup, we, we limit it to one per person, and then you can go back to the, the end of the line if you have more than one item. All right. Just to be fair. Well, I hope you have a great turnout. It's a, a great initiative. Dan, thank you so much, and uh, yeah, have a great day. Yeah, thanks, Jill. You too. Well, there's been lots uh, of different municipal news this week and uh, coming from all different corners of Metro Vancouver. Earlier on in the program, we were talking about the idea that is being floated again, although I'm not sure why this idea is being floated again, and I don't think it's going to actually go anywhere. The idea of Surrey and White Rock amalgamating. I can't imagine anyone. Well, maybe there are. I shouldn't say that. Maybe there are people in White Rock who would be in favor of that. If there are, give the buzz line a call. Let me know why you think that is a good idea. But if uh, you're not in favor as well, you can also let me know that or you can email me. Uh, we talked a little bit about that earlier on in the program, talking to a former White Rock, or we were listening to uh, some of the comments made by a former White Rock city councillor. And we also have been talking about the Surrey Police 
transition because that was also one of the big stories this past week that the Solicitor General uh, said that uh, Surrey has the green light to transition from the RCMP to a new civic force. However, the process is now going to be overseen by the province. So we'll see how that plays out as well. Uh, One of the other big civic stories is traffic. And I think that's a big story no matter where you live, but specifically looking at traffic on the North Shore. And a new study is going to be done on that, taking a look at traffic patterns and what perhaps could be done to ease congestion to and from the North Shore. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about that is Linda Buchanan, the mayor of the city of North Vancouver. Mayor Buchanan, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Thanks so much. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, So $250,000 to take a look at traffic. What will this study actually focus on? So this is uh, a study that came out of uh, the Integrated North Shore Transportation Planning Project that uh, all levels of government on the North Shore have participated in over the last year and a half. Sorry, year and a half. And this is going to basically take a look at the economic impact of... um, of congestion and it's uh, on our businesses and the ability of them to be able to retain and attract employers, move goods, um, scale up. So we know that the congestion is problematic over here and so it is having an impact on our businesses. So this piece of the study is really going to look at those impacts um, for our businesses. Um, so, And the North Vancouver uh, Chamber of Commerce has done some study or survey work on this. Uh, and I guess one of the concerns or one of the questions raised was, haven't we already looked at this? <laughs> well, you know what? People ask that. And certainly there's been some you know, rudimentary look at it. Um, this is going to be a much uh, bigger dive, deeper dive into that. So we have a number of studies that are happening. Um, you know, I was talking to a reporter the other day and You know, things like these take a long time. Um, We are a regional town centre in the city of North Vancouver, and we don't have any rapid transit coming to us at this point. And we need to be able to have our business case put all together so that when, you know, the North Shore comes to the table with the rest of our colleagues at Mayor's TransLink to sort of make our case as to why we need uh, rapid transit on the North Shore, um, we need to have that work done. And so this is just another piece of that. So... Yes, we have some studies that have been done in the past, but this is going to be one that's going to look at the movement of goods, uh, upscaling, you know, the impact of congestion on the ability for businesses to upscale. Um, It's going to be in conjunction with uh, a fixed link feasibility study that's uh, that's in the works as well. And then locally, we also have a main marine corridor study happening as well as Next year, uh, our city will be looking at the Lonsdale Corridor. So it's all those pieces that need to come together in order for us to really make the case um, of why we need um, more infrastructure dollars for public transportation on the North Shore. Right. And I suppose you could ask anybody that commutes to and from the North Shore or spends any amount of time in traffic and they'll tell you, yeah, there's a problem. There's congestion. I mean, I drive out to Global News in Burnaby almost every weekend. And every time Mm -hmm. I drive out there, that highway headed to the North Shore is bumper to bumper vehicles. So it seems like we already know there's a huge problem. Is this more focused on figuring out solutions? So it is. And I think, again, it's it's is getting to what are the major causes. So within the in, the instep 
uh, final uh, report that came out. It identified a lot of the different causes that are happening. And of course, you know, it's it's transportation, but transportation needs to be planned uh, along with land use planning. So high affordability of uh, of housing on the North Shore is causing more and more people to um, live off the North Shore who, who have their jobs here. So in that um, project, what we found is we have four times more volume of people coming onto the North Shore in the morning than are leaving. And that's, we created more jobs and we have people of that age that are filling those jobs and they're not able to live here. So they're, they're moving off the shore. And when we move east, when they're moving east, there aren't great public transportation options for people to get to the North Shore from the east side of the region. So we really need to look at how can we um, potentially have a fixed link. We're not getting a new bridge. We've been told that. If you uh, provide more road capacity, it doesn't improve. It actually induces demand and you actually end up with more congestion. So what are the viable options that we need to provide to get people to um, to already built out regional transportation hubs that can get them to the North Shore in a much more efficient manner. That's competitive with um, being in an automobile or on the road. Um, the other is just it's it's also about freeing up roads capacity for people who absolutely have to drive and then that our goods movement is able to move. The North Shore is home to the North Shore trade area. Um, so we have lots of uh, the federal port businesses that are on the North Shore. They need to be able to move their goods. So if we can find ways for people to find, have alternative choices to be able to get to the North Shore through public transportation, it frees up that road capacity for those businesses to be able to move their goods. And it's also for our businesses to be able to retain and attract employees to their businesses because that's a huge frustration um, which has a huge economic impact on our area if our businesses aren't able to have the employees that they need to do the jobs in order to to make those uh, businesses viable. Right, yeah. You, if you don't know if it's going to take you 20 minutes or an hour and a half to get to work, that's a that's a tough one. When you talk a about huge a, one. <laughs> when you talk about a fixed link, though, are you talking about a, a rapid transit bridge? Because like you said, if we're not... We're not getting. We're not putting another bridge linking the, the North Shore as it is right now. Rapid transit. You, you can't time it because you don't know what the traffic's going to be like on either of the bridges. So would it be mm-hmm. a, a transit bridge? Well, that's one of the things they're going to look at. So that's the feasibility. The fixed link feasibility study is looking at what is the viability of being able to put some form of of rapid transit uh, ex- extension of. Um, rapid transit to the North Shore, where it would start, where it would end, and Vancouver is is on board with with that study as well. Um, And then, yes, and then this part of of the study, these dollars that we were announced that we're thrilled that the federal government um, has put dollars into this is to to really look at if if that was to be viable and move forward, what then is the economic impact of, of having that uh, available and how will that support our business community in being able to upskill more, be able to attract the, the employees that they need um, for the trade area to be able to move their goods more efficiently. Because um, right now, as you said, there's no predictability in terms of the time um, that and so that has a huge impact on that in those businesses being able to be 
sustainable and viable um, if they can't predict the movement of their goods or their employees being able to get to work. Um, so it's problematic. And, and so this it seems like this is the, the first stage, but then say it did suggest that, yes, a fixed link transit bridge is the way to go. Uh, do you see the next hurdle then or the next challenge is funding? Because that's not going to that's going to come with a hefty price tag. Absolutely. So as I said earlier, this is basically these are the initial stages of really putting the pieces together, really making um, getting the, the deeper dive analysis of how it's impacting what would be needed and what would be the dollars that we'd be looking at for next. So really pulling together all the pieces to create that business case. So when we as mayors have to go up against, you know, uh, regional transportation is planned regionally, we have to create the business cases, we have to to put that forward to our colleagues and to um, the other levels of government who would be funding, helping to fund these. Uh, these are billion dollar, you know, multi-million billion dollar projects. They take decades, if not more, to plan um, and to pull those pieces together. So we need to have our, our homework done, our business case done, so that we can show that the North Shore is absolutely needed in terms of investments for public transportation. And we want to have that work done um, for and be ready for when we need to be putting that forward to the rest of the region to say it's the North Shore's time. We need, we need investment and we need to be able to move people and goods much more efficiently to, through and from the North Shore. Right. Do you feel like the North Shore kind of gets overlooked in that we focus so much on Surrey, rapid transit, on the Broadway corridor and other areas? Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say I, we, we've, we've been overlooked. I think in the past, previous mayor's uh, councils have done um, um, an amazing job in terms of, you know, we come there with our regional hats on. We have to look regionally. Um, you know, when you look at the amount of growth that's happening south of the Fraser, you know, the plans that have been put in place prior um, with prior TransLink mayor's councils, that's been appropriate. Uh, I would say now, though, that the North Shore, it's, it's our time. We've done the work. We've put, um, you know, the Integrated North Shore Transportation Planning Project, put together um, 13 recommendations. Uh, studying the fixed link and movement of goods was one of those recommendations. So, again, we're doing our homework to put that business case together, and I would just say now is our time that we need to... Um, we need to have that investment. And so we're doing our homework to make sure that we can hopefully get those dollars we need to have that investment. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, Mayor Buchanan, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a fabulous day. Well, if you have spent any time on Granville Island, you know it is a unique part of Vancouver, especially busy this time of year. But there is a new governing body that is coming into, uh, well, into govern Granville Island. It is the new Granville Island Council. And we are joined now by Dale McClanahan, a former chair of the Granville Island Trust and will be a new member of the new council. Dale, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Jill. Sorry, that was very a very wordy way of saying that there's going to be a new council. How will this be different as far as governing Granville Island compared to how it's been done in the past? Well, up until now, the uh, trust has been an advisory board. And this new board is, I would say, community-based and uh, has uh, more decision-making power to help influence the direction of the island. Uh, There's been some concern raised by artists and business owners on the island that they aren't represented on this new council. How do you address those concerns? 
Uh, well, I've uh, I've looked at the resumes of my fellow council members, and uh, I'm not. I it looks to me like it's representative. Uh, but if we do have gaps uh, around uh, artisans or crafts people, there's ways to fill those gaps. Uh, I think that whenever we've gone through these kind of changes, and uh, overarching this is implementing the uh, 2040 strategy that Dr. Stevenson uh, initiated. Uh, so I think that we've got a good group. We'll see how we work together, and we'll be very alive to uh various constituencies which may be missing or underrepresented. Uh, what was the process, or do you know how were people chosen to be on the council? Well, it's Canada. It was long and detailed. <laughs> it, uh, uh, the, the 2040 recommendation uh, uh, suggested this particular governance model, and there was uh, a request for proposals. Uh, I filled one out. It was only you know eight or ten pages. And uh, I think we had over 30 applicants, and there was a nominating committee, including a former trust person and some other folks involved in the last phase of planning. Uh, And the recommendations uh, were then put forward to the minister's office, who made the appointments. All right. Um, so talk a little bit about this. You mentioned that it's it's more, uh, I suppose, hands-on governing. So will this council then be able to make decisions? And some of the things I think that have been raised already are, are things like if Granville Island was to go car-free or if, or if there were other major changes to it, it would be this body that now decides that? Yep, absolutely. So on the, on the tedious side, there'll be a, you know, a five-year plan, there'll be an operating plan to will help pick the uh, new general manager. And so we, we go down to those operational levels. That'll be very much the basis for debate. And the template, the goal that we're looking for is is laid out well within the 2040 uh, document. But the feeling and the objective of this is to keep and reinforce that original vision of the island, which is not to be dominated by rules and standardization, but to be that unique place, which is what attracts folks. Right. So, and I guess that's one of the concerns too, is that it is a unique place. So would there be even the discussion or looking at say chain restaurants or chain cafes coming to the coming to Granville Island? Uh, uh, probably the easiest thing that people would all agree on. No, that is a bad idea. Like one doesn't need to go to Prague to find a Benetton store and one should not go to, you know, Granville Island to find, you know, uh, uh, a McDonald's outlet. The what's on offer, what we have to provide is, is space and opportunities to enable new things. Young people, the, uh, The ideas that that are now entrenched and grown, like Opus, which is now a chain supplier of art uh, supplies, started on the island. J.J. Bean started on the island. We need to be accessible by people in their 20s and 30s who will bring energy and ideas and be looking forward. Uh, That's the opportunity that the council has to be able to help enable. And what about the idea of, and I think this was floated in the 2040 plan as well, of, of it going car-free or partially car-free? That's, the, that's a perpetual debate, and I think we're moving in that, we're moving in the direction to being less uh, reliant on the car. 
the the traffic engineers were were brilliant to say let's add new alternatives before we take things away and one of the realities is the market which is the economic driver and a big attraction on the island it's hard to take your groceries home on the bus unfortunately so we need that kind of access for handling and delivery and uh and it's uh, still uh, uh, a necessary mode but be better you know more more activity with uh, the ferries uh the tram line worked really well uh when it was uh run as an experiment uh, a little more friendly to bikes. All of those are incremental shifts that, that we'll pursue. Uh, is it kind of a, an example of, of being kind of a victim of its own success and that it is such a draw for both tourists, like you said, the market, people go there to do their grocery shopping, but it is really busy. I mean, even with the introduction of pay parking, it's still uh, chaotic, especially on weekends and that when it's just so busy on Granville Island. Embrace the chaos. Sorry if it's crowded. <laughs> Uh, I would I would say that one what what I've found in the ten years I've been formally involved is there's a huge protectiveness of the island and of that vision, and so part of what the council can do is 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 show progress and reassure people that we understand the vision and that the changes that we're making are consistent with those principles, and I think that will that will get to a point where people will expect to go to the island and see something new in addition to their favorites. And, and there's been also talk of uh, bringing back the streetcar. Is that something that's uh, on that the council will be looking at? Uh, I think so. It'd probably be a medium term uh, issue. Uh, there, there's probably a tangle of jurisdiction and players on that type of uh, uh, an initiative. But um, I thought it worked brilliantly when when it was uh, done on a trial basis. And, and you mentioned something there exactly. We're talking transportation, and suddenly there are other players uh, that get involved. So is that a concern that the council will be making decisions, but there will still be other players involved in a lot of those decisions and making uh, making any changes? Um, I just think it's a reality that you're always dealing with others in these kind of complex objectives. Like we've, we're, we do, we're, we're trying to animate and provide a very interesting uh, area and unique experience. And we're always going to be working with others who are delivering that directly. Like it's the tenants that are exciting. It is not the council, believe me. And <laughs> I'm not being modest. Uh, so uh, we're going to, it's in part, in fact, it's the council's job to try to find ways to speed things up, to be more responsive, to look after the finances, to have a management staff that responds to the unique opportunities that the island is. We're, and that, that's what our job is. But also our job to relate back to the broader community and to the, to the politicians, the federal politicians. And, you know, occasionally we would say, you know, this is a place, you know, that hasn't had any public investment since 1977. You might want to think about some of the great things we could do with some additional uh, resources. All right. Just saying. <laughs> um, when does the, the official council in, uh, is it sworn in or what happens as far as uh, for the official council actually starting? I think we're having our initial meeting uh, late in September. Okay. And a whole bunch of briefing notes and material and all that kind of stuff's been sent around and we'll be reading up on that uh but we're all of that 
is for us to make sure that folks have the opportunity to come to create, to enjoy, to educate on the island, and that we're making sure that we're as accessible to to young people and emerging uh, ideas and trends uh, as we were back in 1977. All right. We will leave it there, but I'm sure we will chat again. Uh, Dale McClanahan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you.